Heavenly Father, I lift our prayers up to you this morning, Father, with a great feeling of gratitude and thanks and appreciation for a small church. Father, I think we have to remind ourselves so often that there is thankfulness to be had in being small. Our hope and our desire is to reach many. And if it be your will and we can grow to make that happen, Father, we certainly would welcome that. But there's also a great benefit in knowing each other face to face and by name and in holding each other accountable to the things of the spirit that we each are called to do and to encourage one another and pray specifically for one another to know when one of ours is missing and to talk and think about how to help those in need. Father, these are blessings that you've given us in this small church, and we ask, Father, that we would be counted worthy stewards of what you've given us, that we'd never look past what we have to hope for what we don't, that we would be focused on who you have given us, Father, rather than concerning ourselves with who we don't have, that we know, Father, that in the day you return and we are judged according to your fair and righteous judgment, that we will be asked what we did with what we were given. And we will be expected, Father, to show faithfulness in the little things you gave us here. And ask, ask, Father, that as we study 1 Corinthians and as we hear Paul reflecting on that judgment day and as we consider how we are serving him now, that we'd be mindful of the things we've been given, that we'd be able to look around with a heart that understands that we serve you here and now, that while we think about tomorrow, we are passing opportunity for today. Help us, Father, to see these things as you see them. Help us to serve others as you would have us serve, to love them as you love us, and to do these things, Father, with an expectant heart, knowing you are returning soon. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We just finished the part of chapter 3 that most of us are best familiar with the part in which Paul talks about our day of judgment. He is guiding us really through a construction project of sorts. He's been describing a comparison between the work of constructing a building and our work in serving the Lord. And last week we noticed that analogy had several parts and we've been learning about what it is God expects of us and what it is he will do in testing us when the day comes by the comparison that he's been making. We read in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 3 that He and his fellow worker, Apollos, were God's workers, God's servants. And the field or the place of their work was us, was the church, universal. Paul calls the body of Christ God's building. We learned, as Paul said, that men who work for the Lord, or women for that matter, have an opportunity to construct God's building. That is the church. And we have an opportunity to do so using one of two different types of materials. In Paul's analogy, on the one hand, we can build using precious materials. We can construct something that's lasting and something that's durable, something that's precious to the Lord. Those are the works that we identified last week in the body of Christ that promote holiness and spiritual maturity and love and forgiveness and generosity and sacrifice and glory and honor to the Lord. Those things which we can do in building up the body of Christ and in serving the mission of advancing the kingdom, those are the things God has called us to do and which will earn his favor. But, Paul says, there was another way we could build. The other option we have is to build in such a way that we produce nothing durable, that we create nothing of value in God's building, in his economy. We can choose to spend our time, spend our energy and our resources on priorities that, frankly, are not the Lord's priorities. 
Essentially, we can be like that one construction worker you've always seen. In fact, usually there's more than one. You know the guy I'm talking about, right? He's standing with his hands in his pockets watching all the other people work on the construction site. You wonder, why is that guy getting paid? It's like we've got the hard hat, we've got the tool belt on, but we're not putting them to work. That's the problem of the Christian who fails to recognize that a test is coming. Paul says the Lord will one day test our work on the day of our judgment following our death. And in that moment, Paul says that our work will become evident, or as we learned last week, the word in Greek just means obvious. It'll become obvious. The work which we did, which mattered to Christ, will be cause for reward, but wasted time and wasted work that produced no value will be the lost opportunity. If you weren't here last week, let me encourage you. I, I don't often say this, so perhaps you'll understand that I have reason to in this case. I would encourage you to listen to what we taught last week. Go back and get that CD last week. I say that not because I'm so enamored with my own teaching, but because the content, the topic, is one of those topics that if you do not understand as a Christian, you are literally fighting with one hand tied behind your back. You are working to serve God without a full understanding of what it is we should be doing. And so please do yourself a favor. See Will after the service and he'll burn you a CD. That would be my recommendation. Now, as we move forward from that, though, in chapter 3 and forward from there into chapter 4, Paul continues with his analogy. So let's continue to hold this analogy of a building, of construction. Keep that in your mind and look as Paul moves it forward. Going next in verses 16 and 17, Paul says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Continuing with the analogy, Paul asks a rhetorical question. He says, Do you not know, or in Greek the word means understand, do you not understand that the church is the temple of God. In Greek, the word you, the pronoun you, is in plural. Not in singular, and you know what that means in Texan, of course. Y'all, in this case, Paul is working with the analogy again of a building representing the church body. Now, he is not talking about the individual Christian's body per se. And I mention that because I know this verse is often one, or this passage is often one that we run to when the conversation turns to the question of how we treat our individual bodies. There's nothing wrong with that application. I wouldn't dispute the fact that we want to care for our bodies with a concern for what God would have us do with them. That much is true. But this is not your proof text. This is not the place you go to prove that point. You go elsewhere, maybe. But this is not what Paul's point is. It's not with regard to how you treat your individual body. His point is, in the plural, the building of God, the people of God, this building, so to speak, this group of people who represent Christ through the body of Christ. He says this building is the temple of God. And keep in mind, when I'm using the word building, I'm not talking about this structure. I'm using the analogy Paul is using. The people are a building, he says. So. The people, the body of Christ collectively is the temple of God for the spirit of God indwells each believer and therefore collectively the body. So Paul asks, don't you understand, Christians, that you collectively are the temple of God? That building that you and I are supposed to be endeavoring to construct with precious things, with stones of value or gold, etc. This thing that we are all tasked with building is the temple of God. It's not just some common construction project. In fact, 
We are building the most important construction project on earth, at least in this age. There is nothing more important to God than his temple, the thing he indwells, the people, his children. And that reason is so important, Paul says, because the spirit of God resides in this building that we are constructing. Consider ancient Israel. In ancient Israel, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God, dwelled among men in a very different kind of building and one made of stone, a stone temple. And God tabernacled in this stone temple so that he might be with his people. And he placed tremendous importance on that stone building. If you know of perhaps read in the law about all the details for the construction of the first tabernacle, which later became a temple. If you understand all the ritual that was assigned to how it was to be kept and maintained and made pure and who could go in and who couldn't go in, consider all of that as a way of understanding God's concern for where he dwells, for his holiness and for how it's represented amongst his people. Now, take it up a notch because you are not made of stone. Peter calls us living stones. The living body of Christ is a temple of even greater importance to God than the dead stone one was in ancient Israel. And if God cares that much for how a stone one was built, how much do you think he cares for how you and I are being built up in the faith? How we are growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So Paul draws the analogy out to make application for us today. He says, if you are the temple today because the Lord indwells you and you are a people being built up, therefore, when we are set at the task of constructing this temple, of edifying one another, of teaching one another, praying for one another, encouraging one another, serving one another, because in that way we construct something of value. How seriously do you think God is going to take our work when he evaluates it? How important is this work to him? You see, it's not merely like we might give a child something to do to keep them busy. And then the child comes back to us with their construction project in cardboard or paper or paper mache. And we're proud that they put the effort in and we show them response that they need to encourage them and so on. But at the end of the day, where does that paper mache thing go? It might last for a few days on the shelf somewhere, but sooner or later it's in the trash. The most valuable thing God will ever build on earth is the body of Christ, according to Scripture. And that is what you and I have been handed as our assignment. How important is it that we do our work well? Well, Paul says that God takes such a sobering view of this work that if any man were to treat this construction project with contempt, in fact, if they were to tear it down, as he uses this analogy further, to tear down the body of Christ, he says, I will destroy them. Now, he means that at least in two ways. First, as an extreme example, he's speaking of false teachers, men or women who come into the church who are not believers, who are wolves in sheep's clothing and have come in with the intent, with Satan's effort behind them to destroy what God is building up. And God says they will not last. They will be destroyed. And then I think also he speaks to the church, to the believer, in which case the meaning of these words would change slightly for the believer, the one who lacks diligence lacks commitment, lacks a sincere heart and a a sincere desire to do the right thing. Someone who takes for granted their place in the body of Christ, who is a harm to their brothers and sisters in some regard. God will destroy them. Now, the destroy would have to mean something very different in the case of the believer, though. We're not talking about eternal destruction. We're talking about temporal destruction. We're talking about Ananias and Sapphira kind of destruction, where God is not above, as I like to say, taking us out of the game, If that's what's needed to save the team, he benches us, 
so to speak. We ought to take concern with how we are constructing this project, not only because of the ultimate judgment, which is our main concern, certainly, but even in the here and now. How much will God do to protect the construction of this building? Well, according to the word of God, he will take any step necessary. We don't want to be the person between him and satisfaction in that construction. Paul goes forward from there. He says in verse 18, let no man deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then let no one boast in men. For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. What's Paul talking about? Well, he says, first, don't deceive yourself. Don't let anyone in this room, don't let anyone in the body of Christ deceive themselves concerning the seriousness of our coming test and the standard that the Lord is going to apply when he judges us. Don't be deceived. Don't fool yourself. God cares so deeply about this construction project that he will hold us to a very stern test because it's a holy building, a holy project, and it's intended to reflect glory upon God. So you can't expect the Lord to overlook shoddy work. And Paul wants us to know what's coming so that we would be motivated to do the right things. And in the case of the Corinthian church, we started this conversation in chapter one with Paul noting that these people, the people in Corinth, had taken it upon themselves to begin boasting concerning who they were in association with other men. Because of who they were associated with, they thought well of themselves. And Paul says that if the Corinthians want to value wisdom and societal status, then they need to understand how you get that in God's eyes, not in man's eyes, in God's eyes. In a nutshell, it looks exactly the opposite of earthly wisdom. In most cases, you can arrive at the wisdom of God by taking whatever the world holds as wisdom and reversing it. You think I'm wrong? Well, start listening to some examples in your head. You just start listening to some things and say, well, what does the world hold of value in this case or in that case? And find out if I'm not right that in each of those cases, you just flip it and you're like, oh, well, that's what God values. For example, the world says evolution. God says creation. The world says self-esteem is really good. We all want self-esteem. What's the Bible say? Pride is bad. Well, the world says the earth is permanent. Always been here, always will be here. God says, no, it's temporary. Well, the world says man is temporary. God says, no, you're eternal. The world says that there are many ways to heaven. God says, no, nope, there's only one. The world says that there is no truth. God says, no, there is truth. And he is a person. And it goes on. Whatever the world says is opposite. Why? Because they are being led by the father of lies whose only tactic is to take what God says and turn it into a lie. So it's always the opposite. There's a teacher my wife and I follow at one point in the past who had a great phrase. She said that knowing the truth of the Bible is like living in opposite world. It's whatever the world is turned on its head. It's opposite world. It's really true. I mean, it's a shorthand way to get to the truth, but you'll almost always be right if you take the world's view and flip it. Paul says, therefore, if you want to become spiritually wise, you must first be willing to become foolish. And he's referring to this opposite world principle that you have to be willing first to be humbled by the word of God to the truth that's found within it. You must be willing to reject the world's standards for they are the lies 
the criteria the world has for what is power, what is status, what is wisdom, turn all of that away. And of course, in the way of doing that, you're going to become foolish to the world and frankly, to yourselves for a while. You'll feel foolish at first. You'll feel silly that you're rejecting so many things the world has told you is absolute truth. Paul says you have to be willing to go through that. You did that when you came to faith. You had to be willing to reject what the world said about Jesus and about Christianity and accept what the Bible said. But that was just the beginning. Once you've set aside the world's wisdom, then the Lord has the ability and the opportunity to begin building up in you a new wisdom, a true wisdom, one that's based in the word, one that's based in God's wisdom. Precious stones, gold, those things were symbolic measures of introducing godly wisdom and promoting spiritual growth into the body of Christ. You and I showed up into this building, even as believers, we still showed up carrying the baggage of the world's view, the baggage of the world's wisdom and the world's perspective. Why do we come here? Why do you even need to be here on Sunday? What is the whole point of church? The whole point of the gathering, according to Scripture, is to build you up in the spiritual wisdom that comes from the Word and from the Spirit working among us. Why do I need to be built up? Because you're a building God cares about. He wants to make you like himself. He wants to glorify himself through the sanctification of his people. You come here to become more like the God of the Bible and less like the world. You take what you learn and give it to someone else. It's a giant construction project built on the wisdom of God. But it starts by rejecting the world, by becoming foolish, so to speak, so that then we can be made wise according to the word of God. In verse 20, Paul says that any time we try to devise some new way to accomplish the purposes that God has already established in his word, we are working in foolishness if we do that. And those efforts will always be useless, that they do not profit the builder. The building of God's building is a spiritual work, not a physical one. So it must be done with spiritual wisdom. And that's why we can say confidently that the size and the appearance of this church or any church can never be the measure of whether or not we are pleasing the Lord for the day of our judgment. That's an earthly measure. That's one of those wisdoms turned on its head. That's one of those opposite world problems. The world would tell you that this group, any group in Christianity, is successful based on how big they are. That's just the natural way human beings think. If a concert is sold out, it's a good concert. If the football game is sold out, it must have been a good game. Why else would it sell out? I mean, the logic is incontrovertible, right? If the church is small, something's wrong. And maybe there are things wrong. There's something wrong in every church. That's not the point. The point is, who makes the church big or small? God. And what's our purpose in being here? Not to make it big. The purpose in being here is to build up who is here. To take advantage of what God has given. Not to concern ourselves with who isn't here. To concern ourselves with size or appearance or status or progress in any earthly sense is to boast about men. First and foremost, ourselves. And then secondly, others with us. But that's not a durable, precious work, according to Scripture. That's hay. That's straw. That's stubble. That stuff burns up because it's not by God's work. It's not according to his spirit. It's not according to his will. That's boasting in men. And if we're going to accept our reward here, then don't expect it in heaven. There's no such thing as a breakthrough in church planting or in church growth. There is no such thing as a new technique for building up believers. Churches grow only upon God's decision to affect 
that growth, both numerically and spiritually. Now, that does not mean we can't be better at the work we've been given. That is a self-evident truth. We can always do better. But the growth, according to Paul, comes from whom? God. I water, you plant. My watering might be sloppy, your planting might be sloppy, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter in the sense that the growth is totally dependent on God. And he works through weak and unwise and ignominious people so that when the growth actually does show up, no one sits around and credits the planter or the waterer. But the shame of it is, sometimes we do that anyway. And Paul says, we cannot receive the rewards we're seeking if our hearts are directed at boasting over our own accomplishments because we will miss the opportunity to serve God where he truly wants us. The best any man can hope to do in serving the Lord is to lay the right foundation, plant the seed, water it, and then stand back and trust God to grow it. You can't improve the foundation. You can't make a better seed. You cannot control the growth, and therefore you cannot boast. In verses 21 and 23, Paul ends with this beautiful, powerful reminder of our relationship to each other in the body of Christ. Paul says, all things belong to us. Now, before you run off with with my suburban, let me explain what he means. He means there is no one within the body of Christ who is privileged above anyone else in such a way that they have reason to create some kind of special status for themselves or special affiliation. No one in here starts ahead of anyone else in this race. No one has some jetpack on their back that God has assigned to us so that we have some built-in advantage for how much we can achieve or how much we can gain in terms of reward. We share the same origins in the faith. We share the same power in the spirit. We share the same destiny in Christ. All things belong to the entire body of Christ, Paul says. Whatever Paul or Apollos or Peter accomplished in working in the field and constructing God's building... All of what they did traces back to the grace and power of Christ. And, Paul says, what Christ gives us traces back to the Father. Since we all share in the same affiliation to Christ, and Christ is in affiliation with the Father, then we all have the same status, the same merit with regard to this building process. We have no one in here that's got a special status. I get to stand up here. Okay, well, that's just a brief moment. Briefer, I know, would be the goal, but brief moment. John stood up here for a while. Rick stood up here for a while. Jeanette had something to say. There's people working with our children right now. There were people who worked during Sunday school. There'll be someone in here cleaning up this building middle of the week while you're off doing something else. Who was most important? Trick question. No one. There is no such thing as the most important person. That's the point. We give attention to certain people in their roles more than others because of where they stand and what they say and who they are maybe. But that's, that's not actually correct. The one I'm most worried about in any congregation is the one who's doing nothing. The one I care most about is why are they doing nothing? Because they've got a gift. They've got a purpose. They've been installed here by the spirit for some reason. Where is that supposed to lead them? There's something holding them back. What is that concern? I certainly don't concern myself with who's talking the most. That's me and it should be less anyway. The issue of boasting. With the issue of boasting having been settled, Paul will now explain the proper perspective that the church should have regarding the apostles' roles. I want to take you back. It's been several weeks, so I want to circle back around to help you see where Paul is now headed. He starts by criticizing them because they had affiliations and divisions, right? And now he's traced through the logic of why everything they were thinking was exactly opposite. The Corinthian church was living in opposite world. 
They valued things that didn't have value. They were neglecting things that they should have been giving attention to. They were concerning themselves with what men thought of them and not what God thought of them. They had all of these things backwards and it had materialized in their treatment of the apostles. I'm of Paul. No, I'm of Apollos. Paul heard that phrase and he knew all he needed to know about what was going wrong in their heads and in their hearts. So now he has laid that bare for them. So now the question is, well, how should you view an apostle? Are they meaningless to that role? No, there's a purpose in the apostle. But how am I to be viewed then if I'm a Paul or if I'm an Apollos? That's what he deals with next. Chapter four. Start verses one through five. He says, let a man regard us in this manner. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I might be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself for I am conscious of nothing against myself. Yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then. Each man's praise will come to him from God. When the church in Corinth encountered a great man like Paul or Peter, Paul says, you are to regard us as servants of Christ, he says, and stewards of mysteries. The word for servant in Christ, in this case, huperatus, it's not the normal one. There's doulos, which you often see used as the word for servant, which is slave, doulos. Here he uses one that's a little less common. It's literally the word under rower in Greek, under rower like a secondary man rowing. It's the word most often translated in the New Testament, officer. If you were to look at it in other places, it's usually officer. And in that way, it describes a person of some authority, but they serve under a superior. Kind of like the difference between a sergeant and a captain. He's calling himself that secondary role, under rower, servant. So he says, when you see me or when you see Apollos, you should regard us as men who have significant positions, yes, Within the church, we're here for a reason. God has commissioned us, yes. But we are not your superiors as Christ is. We are men who have a role, a servant role to him. And as his representative in that respect, you have some reason to honor us, yes. But not as the one responsible for all of this. As the chief steward, as the one who has all of the responsibility. We are simply serving a greater master. And then secondly... Paul says you should also regard us as stewards of mysteries. And the word for steward there just means manager. So a manager, what is a manager? Well, a manager really is just someone who's given something to care for. They didn't create it. They're entrusted with it. This is how it was for the apostles. They were entrusted with certain mysteries, spiritual truths that had not been revealed to men before they were given these mysteries. So they were given the responsibility, the privilege of revealing these things to the church, writing them down and sharing them with you and I through the ages. They weren't the author of the mysteries. They weren't the creators. They were simply the ones delegated to bring it to us. And that's why they're not deserving to be objects of boasting. I mean, really, what would you boast about if you were an apostle? You were picked. You didn't apply. You didn't try out. You were picked. Right. Peter says, we will follow you wherever you go, Lord. And Jesus says, did I not pick you? The twelve? Jesus' point is, what are you boasting about, Peter? I picked you. You didn't have any choice. I said, come on down from the boat. You followed me. So they didn't get picked. And they didn't invent the knowledge. It's not like they sat down and figured it out on their own like a crossword puzzle. No, God said, here's the mystery. Distribute it, please. Exactly how much boasting comes with the role. 
Paul says zero. None. You know, a steward is responsible, though, in some respects. They have to be worthy of the role they've been given. They have to show themselves to be honorable in their management. He says, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. So what Paul's saying is, I have to live up to this role. I have a part to play. I have a role that God has entrusted me with, and I have to live up to that role. And he says, you know what? I think I'm doing that. When he says, it is no small thing that you examine me, we would say it another way. We'd say, it's no big deal. We've kind of reversed it, but it's the same idea. It's no big deal. You want to examine me? Go right ahead. You want to critique me? You want to look at me and decide if I'm worthy to be respected? You go right ahead. I I, I don't mind being subjected to any human court because you know what? My judge is in heaven. And I'm not aware of anything in my life that I need to fix in order to be honoring God in my role. I, I feel I have done my part. And I have to believe Paul said that with great sincerity, even though it sounds quite ambitious, doesn't it? But that's who Paul was. He says, I don't mind being inspected, but I don't boast for my own sake and what I've been given to do. The Lord is my judge. And then he makes the application in verse five. He says the church needs to stop making comparisons, stop passing judgment on each other's degree of service, stop assigning status to each other. That's natural, but it needs to stop. Now, I don't know how much of that we do. I don't don't really get a sense that that's a big part of our lives, but I think it's natural for us to do this all the time without even thinking about it. It's actually a byproduct of sinful flesh, of the sinful, prideful thinking that is in every one of us to some degree, that we naturally make comparisons, even in the body of Christ. I'm serving here an awful lot, and that other person, they really don't seem to be doing as much as I'm doing. I I wish they would just get with it. I'm tired of, of carrying their load for them. Maybe someone here has had a thought like that at some point. I don't know. It wouldn't be surprising if it's happened because it's human nature. I don't know how many times I've had to get here early and -and so-and-so is never here early. Or I don't know how often I've tried to do this and the other person won't do their part. Or I'm giving this much and no one seems to care. I I don't know if those thoughts resonate. But if they do, it's what Paul's talking about. He's saying there is this root cause of the behavior in the Corinthian church, which is making comparisons, evaluating men one against another. And he says that needs to stop. Because Christ is our judge, and he is the one who will hold us accountable, and we are not in the business of taking his role. We may not have a Paul in our midst or an Apollos in our midst, because the apostles have come and they've gone, but we haven't defeated the enemy. He's still here, and as long as believers occupy sinful flesh, we're going to remain prone to what the enemy wants us to do, which is to compare ourselves to each other and to those outside the body of Christ so that we can find someone against whom we can rack and stack with and feel better about ourselves. That is a very dangerous way of thinking, because you'll always find someone you're better than. And in doing so, you justify staying where you are. If you're going to make comparisons, only make one kind, people who are better than you. Go find people who do everything better than you. Look for that person. Because when you find that person, you will feel like doing better yourself. But the problem is that's not how we do it. (laughs) That's not really the way we're into this, right? The whole goal is to find the other person. And we do. I've felt this myself, so I'm speaking a bit out of self-conviction. But, you know, I go to two Bible studies a week and Bobby only attends one. When is that person going to get with it? Or... You know, I give more than Jeff or I make more mission trips than Pam or I attend a Bible church or I serve in a soup kitchen or I homeschool my kids. I mean, even that one gets trotted out sometimes. You see the problem, right? God has put a conviction on your heart. Follow that conviction. And if you're not following it in all respects, then you have something to answer to. But in the meantime, whatever convictions God's put on someone else's heart, leave that to them and God. 
You will gain zero additional treasure in heaven for worrying about what someone else is doing. But you'll have plenty of opportunity by working on what you're doing. Paul says we all need to stop judging one another because we're terrible judges of hay, straw, precious stones, gold, and the like. We just can't see it from God's perspective. So while we're busy criticizing someone for what they're not doing, we may be overlooking the fact that what they are doing is exactly what God wanted them to do. Why do you think the the people in Corinth leveled their criticisms at one another? I think they did it for the same reason that any of us criticize anyone else. We want to influence them. We want to change their behavior. We want them to do what we want them to do. So Paul said he paid little attention to any commentary directed his way because he knew that any such criticism, any such inspection was intended to push him in a direction that was away from where God had put him. He says, I'm not aware of anything I'm doing outside of the counsel of God right now. So if you tell me I should do something different, then by definition, you're asking me to walk further from Christ, not toward him. Now, I don't know how many of us can say that with the same kind of certainty that we know we're exactly where God put us. You'd have to feel that way in order to be completely immune from criticism. But Paul says, I'm serving the master. So all that matters is the master's approval, not the approval of men. So as long as I feel spiritually content that what I'm doing is what God wants me to do, then I can be oblivious to what I think people are asking me. Now, that's Paul. I'm not sure we're at that point. But I do know this, that whatever critiques we encounter, whatever comparisons are being made, we need to check back in with our heart on whether or not we are walking in the spirit on these things or whether we're simply trying to please men. Legalism is right around the corner in any church that wants to please men. We thought Paul was talking about the Corinthian church, but guess what he says in verse 6? He says, I've been talking about you guys, us, everyone. Look what he says. He says, now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Paul says, all these things I've been teaching you about, about planting, watering, building, and all of this stuff where I was talking about Paul and I was talking about Apollos, at all times, he says, from the very beginning, I was speaking about us figuratively because I wanted you to understand I was talking about you, but I didn't want to say it in a way that would offend. That's really what he's saying. You ever had someone tell you, I've got this question I was going to ask you. I need some advice. I've got a friend. Oh, yeah, your friend. Okay, tell me about your friend. It's sort of that way. He says, all this time I've been talking about Paul and Apollos. Guess what? I was talking about you. Paul is pointing out at the beginning the divisions. And now he ends the section by diagnosing the cause of those divisions. They were making judgments about each other, drawing up sides, assigning superiority. And as a result, they were dysfunctional as a body. Paul says that needs to stop. Notice he says they are in danger of exceeding what is written so as to become arrogant. Exceeding what is written. What he means is living outside the boundaries of Scripture, exceeding, going outside what the word says. And in this case, it meant assigning value to things that Scripture does not value, boasting arrogantly in the flesh and doing so to the detriment of unity in the body of Christ. Anytime we untether ourselves from Scripture, we are drifting towards sinful practices and sinful thought, like dividing the body by boasting or by making these kinds of comparisons. We will end up somewhere we don't want to be. Paul says this church has done that. Consider Paul's next comment as we finish. He says in verses 7 through 13, he says, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. 
You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish you would become kings so that we might also reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. Oh, but you, you're prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to reconciliate. We have become as scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. There was a phrase I remember that kids used to throw around in the playground. I'm sure it's still out there somewhere. Anytime someone would try to assume more authority than they really had in the playground, somebody sooner or later would say, well, who died and made you king? That still gets said in my house sometimes. The, the message of that sarcasm, though, is pretty clear, right? We're saying this person thinks so much of their own role that they presumed to be the most important person on the playground. Well, who died and left that to you? Because it doesn't come naturally. Someone must have bequeathed it to you because we didn't give it to you. And that's what Paul's saying here at the very beginning. He says, who regards you as superior? Who says you're important in the first place? It's a strong statement, but it's one I think they needed to hear. Maybe we need to hear it. Sometimes we do need to hear this too, right? There is nothing more pathetic, in my opinion, within the church. Watching someone who's been given a thimble full of responsibility in some small task lord over everybody because of it. Again, I don't see that here, thankfully. What a great place to be that we don't have that. But it's out there. Man, I have seen it in places where you just don't expect it. That person who's just been given a tiny little volunteer task, but man, they're important all of a sudden. Generally, they make a pain of themselves because of it. They make clear to everyone around them that the church exists to serve them rather than the other way around. They act as if God has personally chosen them to represent him in all matters in that church. Folks, God already has a representative and we're not him. And to that person, someone needs to say what Paul says here. Who said you are superior to anyone? Anyway, Paul asked the church, what do you have, by the way, that you didn't receive? This is sort of what he said about himself earlier. Whatever those people in Corinth knew about Christ in their relationship with him, that required someone introduce them to their savior. They were given that in, in faith, most of all. And then whatever they understood about the Bible, about scripture, what little of it existed in their day. Well, someone had to teach them that. Whatever spiritual gifts they had. Well, those were gifts. That's why we use the word gifts. They were given to them by the spirit. It didn't happen because they deserved it. It didn't reflect on them. It was a reflection of the love of God. And so the problem was they were boasting about possessing things as if in the mere possession of them, they merited some status because of that. Folks, if receiving great things makes you great, then that would mean every lottery winner is a genius. And we know that isn't true. Paul mocks them for thinking themselves so great. He says, you're ignoring the plight of the men God used to bring you the very things that you're now so proud of having. Isn't this ironic? The men that brought the Corinthian church everything they have from faith all the way down to what they knew about the Bible and what they had in the church experience. All of that was delivered by apostles who they might notice if they had looked were being killed and persecuted and poor and hungry, didn't have clothes and were being mistreated. He says, you've already become filled. And what he means here is fully spiritually filled. And then he says, you've become rich as if you've already received the rewards of the kingdom. 
And you've become kings as if you are already reigning now in the kingdom. He's speaking sarcastically here, right? None of these things have actually happened. He says, you're walking around like these things have already happened to you. Oh, Corinthian church, you're so wise. You're so powerful. You're so rich. Because they think that of themselves. And Paul says, but have you noticed how we live? You are living as if you've already obtained the things that the apostles are still working for. You think you've arrived and they're not even there yet. They're like the disciples of Christ, if you remember back in the Gospels, who argued about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Remember that moment? One of those sterling moments of disciples. They were looking past the moment and they were arrogantly assuming about where they were going to stand when the kingdom came. And yet they were actually far from understanding those things and from being ready to enter into the kingdom. They had many riches in their life in Corinth. They had many things that made life easy, but that doesn't mean they were pleasing God. And it certainly had nothing to say about Paul and Apollos in the fact that they lived in such miserable circumstances. And Paul goes on to mock them for this. And I love the way he ends this. He's mocking their triumph of self-importance. And here's the logic he breaks down. He says, if your logic was accurate, Corinthian church, what would it say about us that we have nothing? If men of great worth to God are evidenced by the fact that their life is rich and achieves much and has all this ease to it, if that's an evidence of God's pleasure and of your achievement, then what would it say about the fact that all the apostles are suffering so greatly? What does that say about us? And he mocks them with the obvious conclusion. He says, well, you must be prudent and we must be fools. God rewards prudent people and he punishes fools. That's what apparently what you're boasting about, right? Well, then we, we must be fools. And he says, well, you're strong. Well, that must make us weak. Uh, you're distinguished. Well, then clearly we lack honor. If we're going to make assessments of each other in the body of Christ and form those assessments on the things we can see and touch and feel, things like how rich we are, how much status we have, how popular we are, how healthy we are. If those things are truly measures of God's pleasure in us, then explain the apostles. Everything the Corinthian church had, they got from the apostles. And yet they're claiming to have arrived while the apostles are clearly still struggling in the work of the gospel. When we compare our lives to God's appointed messengers and those lives clearly don't have the same earthly benefits we pursue and desire and boast about, then our math is wrong. We have a gall to think that we are greater than those God is persecuting. And that's what the Corinthian church was doing. They were boasting. They were creating an impossible standard, one that made themselves look superior to Paul himself. And Paul points out their ridiculous standard. And, and I do see this same problem today. We are often told that if we are poor or if we are lacking the things we want in this life, it is proof that God is not pleased with us or that we do not have enough faith. That is the same logic that the Corinthian church had fallen into and Paul mocks in this letter. If that were true, how do you explain the apostles? We're told that if we're suffering persecution, it means we haven't found the right way to approach people in a culturally sensitive manner. How do you explain the apostles? We're told that God wants us to be happy at all times. How do you explain the apostles? God wants to always heal our bodies. How do you explain apostles crucified on a cross or beheaded or stoned? How do you explain martyrdom? Paul says if apostles were judged according to the standards of the world, then we would have to conclude that the apostles are the least valued of all God's people because they suffered the most. God turned them, he said, into a spectacle before angels and men. But we know opposite world is reigning in Corinth. 
The opposite is true. We know that human values and human boasting are valuing exactly the opposite of what is true. These men, the apostles, were valued for their self-sacrificial willingness to serve a master against an enemy who had real power. And it was Paul's diligence and self-sacrificial effort that brought the gospel to Corinth and established the church and allowed a group of Corinthian Greeks to stand around on a later day and boast about how well they had done in the faith and how far they had come and who they were and all the rest. If you want to climb a ladder, you need to choose, is it the social ladder or is it the ladder that leads to Christ? You can't climb two ladders. The one that leads to the heavenly reward requires getting off the one that leads to world approval. You've got to become fools in the world's eyes so that you can become wise in God's estimation. That's the expectation of Scripture, because those value systems are always opposite. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, help us to see, Father, how we bend our knee to the world's expectations, even when we confess that we do not want to. It's a part of our flesh. We know that it is the enemy's ability to turn our heads at times that leads us astray. But, Father, I pray that with what we've heard in your word this morning, we would have a strength again to withstand the enemy's schemes, the temptations of the world. We work, Father, where you place us. We earn what you give us. We live in this world. We cannot be taken out of it until the day comes, and we know that. We just ask, Father, that we wouldn't be owned by it, that its values would not be our values, its wisdom would not be our wisdom, that as a Christian walking in the light of the Word of God, we would walk in a new direction, and we would come upon new truths, and it would change our heart in a way that brings us pleasure with you and eternal reward in the day you judge us. We ask, Father, that we could do a great work in building this building, the people of God, because it glorifies you, and it pleases you, and it's why we are still here. Let that be enough for us, Father. Let your pleasure be enough for us. Let your approval be enough for us. Let the opportunity to receive a uh, heavenly reward supplant any desire for an earthly one. Father, we don't know how many days we have left. We don't know how long before your son returns or we go to meet him as we die. We don't know how you plan to develop this body, whether you intend to grow it or whether you intend to keep it as it is. Father, what we do know this, that you've left us here for a time and for a purpose. Let us fulfill that purpose. Let us serve well in the time you've given. Call us to set aside things that encumber us so that we may please you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.